something different today. I'm going to tell you in just a few moments why I'm doing it different uh, as we prepare to launch into the Word of God. Let's say a quick word of prayer, uh, and then we'll launch into it. And along the way, I'll tell you why it is that we're doing what we are doing. Father, in the name of Jesus, we bless you for this place, for each and every person who is here today. Lord God. And we do pray that that song that we just heard, Lord God, would actually be true of us, that we would be sold out. Father, deliver us from cultural Christianity. Deliver us, Lord God, from this notion of we can know you as Savior, but not as Lord. God, that we would be sold out in every dimension of our lives, at work, at school, at the frat house, on the college campus, in class, no matter where we be, Lord God, may people see Jesus in us. That's our prayer today, Lord God. Now, Lord God, I I do pray for favor. I do pray, Lord God, that you would uh, bless me in this moment as I share your word, your thoughts, your vision with these, your people. I pray, Lord God, that, uh, uh, that it would be clear, that it would be compelling, Lord Jesus, and that, Father God, we are believing you for even greater things into our future, and we ask, Lord God, that you would do it. God, strengthen those of us who do know you. We pray, Lord God, for those who don't know you, that someone, some people would pass from death to life today and that you would add to your church. It is in Jesus' name we ask all of these things. Amen and amen. The true story is told of the time in which the great Albert Einstein had boarded a train. And as he boarded this train, it was obvious that he was a little bit disheveled, that there was a sense of disequilibrium to him because he was frantically looking and searching for something. He was checking in between seats, underneath seats, going up and down the aisle, looking at the floor. And in the midst of all this, one of the workers on the train recognized this venerable and distinguished, by this time famous, Professor Einstein. A little bit starstruck, this this worker on the train said, oh my goodness, uh, Dr. Einstein, Dr. Einstein, it is so good to see you. Congratulations on the uh, brand new um, uh, Nobel Peace Prize that you just won. It seems as if you're looking for something. What, what are you looking for? How can I help you? And while, without even looking at him, Dr. Einstein continued to kind of look up and down the aisles, check in between seats. And in the middle of his frantic search, he said to the train worker, thank you, but I'm, I'm looking for my train ticket. Well, the co-worker comes up to him and uh, the, the train worker comes up to him and rests his hand on Albert Einstein's shoulder and says, oh, dear, dear Dr. Einstein, we, we all know who you are. We, we know you're not trying to scam us. We, we know you're good for it. You don't, you don't need to continue looking for your train ticket. We know who you are. And now Dr. Einstein, already in a fit of anxiety, is now a little bit frustrated He looks at this train worker and he says, I'm not looking for my ticket because I don't know who I am. I know exactly who I am. He says, but I'm looking for my ticket because I don't know where I'm going. You know, when people don't know where they're going, there tends to be a bit of disequilibrium angst. And dare I even say anxiety. 
fundamental to all of us leasing time on God's green earth, in our own proverbial way, we say from time to time, where is this train headed? Where is my career going? Where is my family going? Some of you singles may be asking, where is this relationship going? At the end of the day, what I'm putting my finger on is we all, by way of necessity, have to have vision. Vision is not just something nice. Vision is not just something that is in the category of it would be good to have. But what air is to the lungs and food and water is to the body, vision is to the spirit. The Bible speaks of this. In Proverbs chapter 29, the Bible actually says, without vision, the people perish. The Bible is clear that that where there is no vision, there isn't just a sense of disequilibrium or a sense of being disoriented. There's actually death. People need vision. I'm reminded of the time in which the great Helen Keller who was blind herself, was once asked the question in a very insensitive way, uh, Miss Keller, what's worse than being blind? And I love her response to this insensitive question. She said, the only thing I can think of that's worse than being blind is having sight but no vision. Too many of us have sight but no vision. The Bible also makes it clear that vision isn't just something that's necessary. It's not just given to us to sustain us. But vision is also needed because it inspires us. In Habakkuk chapter 2, God is having a conversation with his prophet. And he says these words to the prophet Habakkuk in Habakkuk chapter 2. He says, Habakkuk, write the vision. Make it plain on tablets, the idea there of of clarity. So he may, I love this, run who reads it. In other words, God is saying to Habakkuk, vision is not just necessary, but it inspires people. Habakkuk, I'm I'm going to give you this vision. Now, Now, there's no point in me giving it to you if you keep it to yourself. I want you to write it. Make it plain so that when people see it, they don't just stand. They don't just walk, but they run. When there is a clear and compelling vision, it inspires us. And that is what Habakkuk chapter 2 points to. The inspiring nature of vision. If this is your first time here at Abundant Life, you've picked a great Sunday to be here. I am instituting today a routine at this church that we will do two Sundays out of the year. We will do it as long as I'm pastor here, every August, the start of our ministry year, and every January, the start of the new year. Twice a year, I'm going to give what I'm calling 
the state of the church address. I'm going to take the jumper cables of vision and seek to pump life into this church so that we would hear it and run with it. Uh, This morning is going to be a little bit different. Typically what I like to do every single Sunday is I like to open up the scriptures, anchor down in one text, uh, do what's called expository preaching. It's a huge word. I actually love Alistair Begg's definition of expository preaching, this great pastor in Cleveland. Uh, Alistair Begg says expository preaching simply means letting the text set the agenda for the message. Now that's a novel point. Unfortunately, you can go to a lot of churches and not hear much word. Our philosophy here is we open up the text and we walk through that text. Why? Because God made a promise that his word would not return void. My illustrations may return void. My outline may return void. And Lord knows my corny jokes will return void. But God's word will not return void. Next week, I want to encourage you to come back. We're going to begin a verse-by-verse study through the book of 1 Peter. I'm calling it Exiles, Passing Through Without Passing By. We need to hear this word in the Bay, one of the most desirable places in the world to live. We love living here in the Bay, but you need to be reminded this ain't home. That There's going to come a point when God will say, give me back my breath. And we shall behold him face to face. We need to be reminded that we're exiles. So that verse-by-verse study is coming next week. But today, I want to anchor this message. It will be anchored in the scriptures. But I want to give a state of the church address. I'm going to do this twice a year. Why twice a year, Pastor? Because Bill Heibel says, vision leaks. We tend to forget what we're here for. We tend to forget, why do we sing songs? Why do we come here? Why do we take notes? We tend to forget. So we need to be reminded. I want you to kind of see this as a, as a twice a year wheel alignment. You know, if you just get in your car, you just drive down the street and over the course of time, you drive and you drive and you drive and you get to a point where if you were to take your hands off the steering wheel, uh, the natural course of things is not for your car to stay straight, but it's to drift from one side or to another. When that happens, you have to take it in to get a wheel alignment. And what's true of cars is true of churches and organizations. The natural state of things is to drift, even drifting into good things. I'm reminded that as a leader, the greatest threat to current success, or rather the greatest threat to future success, is current success. That sometimes we can get so enamored with good things that good things become bad things when they take us away from the essential things. Twice a year, we need to be reminded What is essential? What did God mean when he began this thing called the church? So this morning, I want to do three things. Here's the table of contents for our message. One, I want to take some moments and look back and celebrate the faithfulness of God to abundant life. 
two, I want to pull you into our present and catch you up on some pretty significant changes we're making. Three, I want to end by staring into our future, casting vision anchored in the scriptures for what abundant life is called to be. First, let's take a moment to look back. You know, if you read through the scriptures, one of the things that's interesting, I, I, it really hit me last year. Every year I just try to read through the Bible. I, I like to approach the scriptures in two ways. In my morning readings, I try to read, if you read about four chapters a day, you'll get through the Bible in a year. Um, I actually try to read a little bit more than that. And so I just kind of like to kind of fly over the scriptures every year, 35,000 foot level. And then in my own personal study, as I study every week to deliver the message here, I'll drill down deep. So I like that combination, flying over 35,000 feet, personal study here as I study the word, drilling down deep, far and and wide and deep at the same point. So one year I'm reading through the Bible. One of the things that hits me as I'm reading through, especially the Old Testament is, and I want you to really hear this, in the Old Testament especially, we see it somewhat in the New Testament, that when godly leaders get into the winter years of their life, they make it their business to grab future generations and recount to them the story of God's faithfulness. It is as if they are sitting in a rocking chair saying, let me tell you, let, let's turn on the history channel here and let me show you how good God has been, not just out there down the street, round the corner, but let me tell you, let me testify how good God has been to me. So if you read through the book of Genesis, for example, The first book of the Bible, this is the patriarchs. Abraham does it with Isaac. Isaac does it with Jacob. Jacob does it with his boys. Over and over again, they're recounting the faithfulness of God. And specifically, they're talking about the Abrahamic covenant. And they are just wowing future generations and saying, you're a part of a narrative that's bigger than you. God's been faithful. It's Moses. In fact, this is really much of the book of Deuteronomy. Moses is kind of sitting in his rocking chair, giving his swan song. And over and over and over again, he is recounting the faithfulness of God. This is how patriarchs do. It's Samuel who's hurt that the people said, we don't want your leadership. We actually want a king like the other nations have. And what does Samuel do in his swan song? Even though he's hurt, he recounts the faithfulness of God. It's David on his deathbed telling Solomon, listen, here's the narrative. God chose me, passed over all my brothers, and he chose me and he made a covenant with me. And the same God that's seen me through, the same God that's kept me is the same God that if you will just keep your hand, as my grandmama used to say, in God's unchanging hand. That same God will keep you too. This is just amazing. So when I landed here, actually, when I started flying back and forth from here in March, one of the things that was just evidence, I would sit with many of you at coffees and lunches is, Pastor, I want you to understand, yeah, we've been through some things, but God's been good to this church. God's been faithful to this church. Let me take you back to 1989. You can put that first image up. Who here was, uh, was there, was at this church in 1989 during the Saratoga days? Any Saratoga saints? 
Can, can, we, can you just stand, if you were here back in the Saratoga days, we, we want to just acknowledge you, church, Mother Hill, and people all over the place. Let's just acknowledge these faithful. Up in the balcony, too, I see you all the way up in the balcony. We acknowledge these faithful saints. You may be seated. 1989, a young man by the name of Paul Shepherd comes to this church. Back then, it was actually known as the East Palo Alto Church of God. And as I was just doing the research here, um, and I don't say this to be politically correct, right? It's, it's, it's kind of really a problem. Now, I want you to leave that image up there. Just, just leave it up there. It, it's kind of politically correct for a predecessor to kind of say a bunch of stuff, but I'm, I'm just reminded uh, of the sin of flattery here. You do know the difference between flattery and gossip, Right. Flattery is saying something to a person's face that you would never say about them behind their back. And gossip is saying something about a person behind their back that you would never say to their face. Right? So I don't want to flatter here, but I really mean this when I say Paul Shepard was way ahead of his time. He comes here in 1989, and one of the things that strikes me as I'm doing my history on the Saratoga days, if there's one word that just strikes me about those days, it's the word change. He makes four significant changes when he comes here. He's envisioning wanting to reach the bay, and he wants to remove barriers. And so one of the major significant changes that he makes is he decides to change the name from the East Palo Alto Church of God to Abundant Life. It's not that he's anti-denominational. He just doesn't want a denominational name in the name to be a stumbling block from as many people hearing the gospel as possible. So he changes the name. Not only does he change the name, but he changes the dress. Now, now for some of you, this is no big deal. But from where I came from, in my tradition, which was Pastor Paul's tradition, you came to church suited and booted. I mean, my mom would be having a fit right now if she were sitting in the audience and I don't have a tie on. She would question my salvation. How can God hear you, preacher, with no tie on? By the way, whenever you see me with a tie on, you know Mama Loritz is somewhere in the audience. She does not play. And it was stressed out. I grew, I grew up down south. Again, you know, I grew up in a church that didn't have air conditioning. And here I am, nine years old, sitting on a hard pew, feet dangling off the edge of it. Man, middle of August, no central air. And they give me a little wooden stick with a picture of Dr. King on one side, advertisement for a funeral home on the other side. And I'm going, yeah, I feel like I'm about to die up in here. So praise God that Pastor Paul changed the dress. But it's strategic. He's, he's seeing down the road in visionary leadership. And he's wanting to reach unchurched people. And he doesn't want dress to be a barrier. He changes the worship style. And he even changes his preaching style. The African-American tradition, there's, there's this very much an oratorical style of preaching, right? And I, I've, I've actually been to churches where they've done the seven last things of the cross and rich African-American tradition. And, and, and I love a hoop, but you've got to say something to me before you give a hoop. Like, before you get to the gravy, I want some meat, So I'm not anti that, but Pastor Paul is saying, I'm in a different context. So he changes his preaching style to more of a conversational kind of style. And this is laying the groundwork 
for some real fruitful things. Later on in 1989, they now move to the Cubberly location. Who here was, was a part of the Cubberly days? I won't have you stand at each one of these, but I see you all across here, even up in the balcony. The Cubberly days. The, the word that comes to mind as I did, did my research on the Cubberly days is, is the word multi-ethnic. So these changes happen, and now all of a sudden... Um, to, to people's surprise, and from what I hear, Pastor Paul, he didn't have as a stated goal to be multi-ethnic, but God pleasantly surprises Pastor Paul. And white folks start showing up, and Asians start showing up. In fact, I, I, I love what one person said here. I, I just ripped this out of one of the communication pieces. And w- one person uh, just, just makes the statement how uh, we, we knew God was up to something. You can go ahead and put it on the screen. Uh, the thing that really struck me was when Asians came and they stayed. I thought, man, God is really doing work here. And I hope you don't take that as something bad, but just... God's pleasantly surprising this church. They actually have racial reconciliation meetings. Was anybody ever part of those meetings where they're diving headlong into this issue? Rodney King happens in Southern California and Abundant Life begins talking about that. And this church is starting to look like what heaven will look like. In fact, even to this day, some 25 or so years later, I want you to just look at it, the audience. We are reaping the fruits of those cubberly days. Thank you, two or three of you. So they're there from 1989 to 1996. 1996, they take on a new location. It's O'Brien. Who here was during the O'Brien days? Yes, many hands. Uh, the word that, that, that really uh, encapsulates the O'Brien days is growth. Growth. I mean, the church gets to O'Brien, a couple hundred people, and by the time they leave in 2004, 2,500 people are calling Abundant Life home. Amazing growth is happening during this time. Uh, towards the end of their o- O'Brien days, it just begins to hit them. Man, we've, we've got to do something. We're killing our pastor. He's having to add all these services. People are d- being disobedient. I actually hear, you know, that, you know, people are um, not supposed to be coming into service because breaking, um, um, you know, fire codes. But the word is just so good. We're going to disobey government and come on in and get that, that word. And so they're coming in and they're hearing the word and this growth is happening. But now the question on the table is, man, we got to find a bigger place to house the growth and what God is doing. And the radio ministry is exploding. But here we are on the peninsula and, and, and churches don't grow on trees and empty buildings just aren't sitting there. So what are we going to do? And then the Leghorn location, uh, someone recommends that, but it just seems as if the price is way too much. And so the elders say, let's just, let's just call on the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and there's fasting and there's praying and I mean just looking at the bank statements and there's no reason why the people who own this should have given it to this church but God moved on the hearts and he shows himself faithful and we are meeting today in a place in which we have no business meeting. And we're here for one reason and one reason only. The faithfulness of God. 
So by the time 2009 comes around, this church goes from 2,500 to somewhere between six and 7,000 people who are coming in Saturday night services and Sunday nights, uh, Sunday morning services. And then it happens. Then it happens. Pastor Paul moves on. A couple years later, another pastor comes in. Some things happen. There's a bunch of pain. A bunch of people leave. And there's no reason why we should be here today. Satan had shot his best shot. Satan was just intent. I believe he did not like what was going on here. People getting saved. Multi-ethnic looks like heaven. He shot his best shot. There's, there's this people trickling, trickling, trickling. There is a remnant that is left, and it makes no sense. I'm going over the books last year. This remnant gave, without a lead pastor just last year, almost $2 million. How do you explain that? But God and the faithfulness of God. We are still meeting here today, having gone through all that we have gone through because God's hand is still on this church and godly leaders who are seeking God. And he is providing just with that widow, just enough manna, just enough oil to keep us through. We ought to just take some time and to just one more time, thank God and celebrate God for what he's done in this place. Amen. Amen. So that's a look back. God has been, is, and will be faithful to this church. I don't believe the God of Saratoga or Cumberly or O'Brien is dead. I believe that same faithful God is still at work and that there's greater down the road for this church. So now I enter into the story and... um, I get a call last summer that leads to a bunch of conversations. Um, my wife and I, for a lot of talking and prayer, we're convinced this is God's next assignment for our lives. Uh, and we come here not to be the savior of abundant life. There's one savior who is alive and doing well, and it ain't me. So it's Jesus Christ, right? So we praise God for Jesus Christ, yet he called us here. And we, we weren't surprised by anything when we got here. The elders were just, they put all the cards out on the table. And we had financial discussions and, and church history discussions about what had happened here at Abundant Life. And some very real and vulnerable talks. And it was, it was, it was really sobering, but God was really clear. He, he gave me Joshua chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. He says, I'm calling you one word that's going to mark your tenure here at the church. I'm calling you to be courageous. 
Now, this is the word God gave me, and then the next thing I know, I, well, I won't even get into that because it'll, it'll seem like, like something else, but it was just confirmed to me over and over and over again. So, so I, I, we, we, we step in here, sign on the papers in January, start commuting back and forth uh, in March. Our kids were still in school in New York. Uh, they they uh, kept going to school until the end of June. They're not too happy with us. They only got a six or seven-week summer vacation this year. Um, but here we are. We landed officially July 15th as of family and we're stepping in here and already some great, great, great things have happened. Last year, less than 10 people joined this church. This year, already in six months, some 46 people have joined this church and have said, we want to lock arms and be a part of abundant life. Amazing things have happened. Attendance has, has spiked. Giving since March is actually up 13% over last year. Praise, praise God. And let me just take a station break right here. And let me just say to you, those of you who are giving uh, systematically and generously and sacrificially, praise God for you. God is using you in amazing ways to get done what he wants to get done at this church. But for those of you who call Abundant Life home and you may not be giving, let me just say that praise God for the 13%, but we are still not where we need to be financially. We're not worried. We're, we're not losing sleep. But if you call Abundant Life home and you're not giving, let me just say we need you. And we, we need you to step up and lock arms with us to help us to lean into our future. Since coming here, some wonderful changes have happened. We've had some, uh, some staff transitions that have taken place. And what we've done is we've been able to kind of reallocate those dollars into some specific ways. One of our dreams for this church is we want to be a gospel-centered. I'll unpack these terms here over the months that, that, that follow. We want to be a gospel-centered, disciple-making, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church. So we are not a church here. I think one of the great problems with so many churches is that so many churches uh, suffer from the sin of ageism. Where we just kind of dismiss the older seasoned saints. That is reprehensible in general, but especially in the Bible. So we want to be multi-generational. But a part of what that means is as I've walked into Abundant Life and I've done some data and some analysis, we live in a wonderful place that's positioned to growth, a place in which millennials are flocking to, and we want to be a place that continues to attract our seasoned saints and young millennials at the same time. To help us with this, when we had some of these staff transitions, um, I decided that one of the things that we could do to help be a gathering spot and to strengthen our gathering is to bring on a worship leader who will join Anton in the team. And already we've been blessed by the worship leading of Cormac Parker Jr., who's not here today. He's back home in Kentucky with his mom, but will be back next week. Just recently, uh, I asked on an interim basis for Aaron Alvarado to give leadership to our student ministries. He came on on an interim basis this summer, and we're just now making him full-time. Already under his leadership, just in 90 days, the student ministries, middle school and high school, has gone from 17 to over 40. Great things are happening. 
I meet with him every week for a little bit of coaching, and I told him, I said, Aaron, you don't realize this, but I've been watching you. He says, but you haven't showed up to any of our stuff. I, I says, I have, but through my kids. And uh, my kids tell the truth, and my 15, 13, and 11-year-old sons absolutely love what's happening there. They're having fun, but they're diving deep and learning about integrity and what it means to love and walk with and serve Jesus. This, going, this is going to set a wonderful foundation for young families to flock back to our church and for people to hear the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Some amazing things are taking place here at the church. Well, as we round third and head for home, what is our future? In order to answer that question, I'm just a big believer that if you take care of mission and vision, if you give people their train tickets and tell them this is where this thing is headed, everything else falls into line, including money. So if you align up with God's vision for the church, everything else falls in line. In order to get our eyes, our arms around what kind of church we want to become, it's important that you understand in general there are four kinds of churches. Let me give them to you right now. One kind of church that is really prevalent in our society today is what I call cruise ship church. Cruise ship church, their mission is your satisfaction. It's all about the consumer. In cruise ship church, they say stuff like, um, was parking okay? Was it easy to find? Where, when you walked in, where, was the signage clear? Did people greet you? Was the temperature just right? Was the, um, were the chairs uh, comfortable? Did the preacher, was he engaging? Did he preach for too long? Why, why do we ask all these questions? Did your kids have a good time? Why do we ask these questions? Because in cruise ship church, it's all about you, the consumer. The problem with cruise ship churches, though, is in Christ, God doesn't call us to be consumers. He calls us to be contributors. That a real mark of my maturity in Christ is seen not in just my ability to receive, but in my ability to give. Because Jesus says it is more blessed to give than to receive. So it goes without saying we are not going to be a cruise ship church. Second kind of church is a hospital church. This, this kind of church is just catered towards the broken, towards the sick. Now, to be clear, yes, churches should go after those who are broken. In some sense, all of us are broken. All of us have dysfunction because sin is brokenness and dysfunction. We all have that. In fact, Jesus said in Luke chapter 5, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I haven't come to the righteous, but, but I've come for sinners. I've come for sick folk. Here's the problem with hospital churches. They tend to take a 30-year mortgage out on a hospital bed. In hospital churches, they tend to encourage long-term sickness and brokenness. They keep saying, you're so broken, and you're so broken, and you're so sick, and you're so sick, and you're so broken. There's some Christians like that. I don't like being around them. Like if you're always at the altar, if you're always going through, at what point do you go, Jesus died so I could have some victory. Jesus died so I can have some health. It doesn't mean we don't get hurt from time to time, but we don't stay hurt. We get the the healing that we need. We get the fixing that we need so we can keep this thing moving 
down the road. Third kind of church is what I would simply call amusement park church. Amusement park church is all about numbers. Let's just get them in, get them out. Let's get as many people as we can. Let's feature a ride or a series of rides. Let's run commercials on these rides. Let's get people really excited about the rides and get them in, get them in, get them in, get them in, get them in. And amusement park church, it tends to cater around one charismatic, dynamic personality. Let's make him the Michael Jordan of the crew. Let's make him the featured ride of the church. And everything in the church orbits not around Christ, but around this dynamic individual. Now, that may be fine for a season, and you may get him in, get him in, get him in, get him in. But now what happens when the ride breaks down? Our faith is not in a human being. It's in Jesus Christ. And I long for the day when people don't call the church asking who's preaching. Because the emphasis is not on the messenger, it's on the message. So let me me just stop right here. Let's just catch our breath. Let me say the most uninspiring thing I'm going to say in this message. We are not going to be Either of those churches, especially, we're not going to be an attractional amusement park church. Let me just say that right now. I don't say this to disparage uh, any of my predecessors. I praise God for them. Uh, I am vehemently against shadow boxing my predecessors. I'm not going to say anything bad about them. God used them in significant ways. In fact, as I travel this country, true story, I was just in Colorado preaching to pro athletes outreach. This tall white guy comes up to me named Steve Stenstrom. And, um, you know, he says, abundant life, man, that church changed my life. Yes, praise God for it. So why would I want to disparage anything anyone else has ever done? But I, I need you to really hear me right now. Because if you miss this, you'll miss everything else that we, we have to say in the last 10 minutes together. Put up that picture of abundant life uh, inside the sanctuary, packed house. Many of us can remember those days, right? It's good times. Here's Here's what I want to tell you. As I sat down with coffee with many of you, as as we've had lunches, as we've talked, as you sat in my office, some of you, I shouldn't say some, some of you, most of you, the way you've come across to me was that was the good old days and success is getting back to that. So I, we, we want to get back to that. We, we want to pack this place out. So l- l- let me just say this. The problem with people in general, and I especially see this with church people is, We tend to take a picture of the church when we think it was at its best. But what we don't realize is the church is not a picture. It's a movie. I'm going too fast. The problem with many of us is we tend to take a picture of something when we perceived it was at its best. And that picture stays stuck in our minds. But the problem is, abundant life ain't a picture. It's a movie. 
So you need Bible. Children of Israel come to Moses one day. And we sick of this manna and with this occasional quail. Whew, we sure had it good in Egypt. Man, them ribs was good back in Egypt. Them collard greens was off the chain back in Egypt. You're going, are you serious? Like you were a slave. But they're stuck on the history channel. What, what, what have they done? They've taken a picture and they refuse to change and adjust to their present and live into their future because they're still stuck on a picture. You with me on that? So here's what I need you to understand. We bless God, especially for Pastor Paul and the way God used him. We bless God for him. You'll never hear me talking bad about him. We bless God for him. And I say that legitimately. Many of you sitting here, you got saved. You got strengthened. You got better under his ministry. Praise God. But I want you to know, fasten your seatbelts, change is coming. Hear me. And when it comes to change, there tends to be three kinds of people. Critics, advocates, and bystanders. Yeah, y'all ain't shouting amen on this one. Change is coming. And when change happens, there tends to be three kinds of people, critics, advocates, bystanders. Now, now, now to some degree, we all have that in various things. I mean, I remember when I first bought TiVo, you guys remember TiVo? Brought it home. My wife said, why are we spending the Lord's money on TiVo? Right? Now, Two weeks later, I come home from a trip, get in the bed, and she's bloop, bloop. She's recording stuff and things of that nature. So we've all got, and there's some things we should be critics of. If I get up here and, says, and I say something that's against the word of God, we should be critical of that. But the problem here is I'm not dealing with message. Message ain't going to change. The message that Jesus Christ died in my place for my sins, that doesn't change. But methods should. So let, let me help us by way of this. So, so we're, we're instituting a giving liturgy. It's just a tool. It's just a tool. Some of you, when it comes to the giving liturgy, advocates, you've actually emailed me. Oh, pastor, that's so good, man, so good. Can you email me the, the actual words of that liturgy? I want to use it devotionally. Some of you are going, oh, I didn't send you that email. Some of you are critics of it. There's nothing unbiblical about it. But maybe some of us are critics because maybe in Pastor Paul's day, we didn't talk much about money. Or what if we were to pass an offering basket? I'm not saying we are. There's not a verse in the Bible that says, thou shalt not pass an offering basket. 
But I want you to understand, people, you get normalized to a culture, a way of doing things. And what we have to be careful of is Jesus says, you can't put new wine into old wineskins. And when he talked about old wineskins, he wasn't talking age. Old wineskins, they were wineskins that had no more elasticity in them. They couldn't flex. They got to a place stuck. Now, now we know that has nothing to do with age because one of my favorite people in the Bible is Caleb. And at 85 years old, Caleb says, give me the hill country. 85. He says, I'm up for a fight. I'm up for something new. So I want you to fasten your seatbelts. Change is coming. Will you be a critic, advocate, or bystander? So who are we going to be? We're not going to be cruise ship. We're not going to be hospital. We're not going to be amusement park. We're going to be what I call an equipping church. Ephesians chapter 4 says it this way. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to mature manhood. Leave it, leave it up there. I love this. My favorite verse in the Bible is a pastor. Why? Because it says, pastor, you ain't got to do the work. I love it. I love it. I love it. My job is to equip you to do the work. So that my job is to take ministry and give it away and give it away and give it away and give it away. It is to be an equipping church. The idea of an equipping church is it approaches church with this mindset that at the end of the day, all church is, is a huddle. It's not the game. We don't go to, we're the 49ers player, we're the Oakland Raiders player, we're Stanford's football team's going to play, and we don't sit there for uh, three hours and just watch them huddle and leave going, oh, that huddle was amazing. No, you would ask for your money back. Why? Because you went to the game for one simple reason. What difference did those few seconds in the huddle make once you broke huddle and put into action the play that you called against 11 other people who were daring you and opposing you to snap the ball? All this is, is a huddle. The game is out there in your neighborhood, on your job, on the college campus. And we exist to give you what you need to live Christ out there. So one of my pet peeves with churches is we spend so much time encouraging you to come to the church that you don't have time to be the church. So some of my favorite restaurants are those with some of the simplest menus. Chick-fil-A. We do chicken. We don't do burgers. We don't do tacos. We do one. We play one note here. Chicken, 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 chicken. Simple. Well, the other day, man, I got blessed. Went to Los Altos Grill. Lord, have mercy. Praise God, I didn't have to pay for that. But went to Los Altos Grill. If you ever want to bless your pastor, take me there. Uh, went to Los Altos Grill. And it's just a simple kind of one-page menu. I go to Cheesecake Factory too much going on. My heart gets, you know, beating fast. My chest gets tight. Look, what you need is simple, 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 simple. Some of y'all are doing too much. I'm seeing you too much around here. So what a Christian's mindset is just moved into this neighborhood. Maybe God wants me to be the chaplain to my neighborhood. 
How do I reach my neighborhood? You can't reach your neighborhood and be at the church all the time. You just can't do it. So some of you all just need to go, I'm going to do two or three things here. These are some areas where I need to get equipped so that I can give ministry away. Now, in order for an equipping church to happen, two things have to happen. Mission and leadership. What makes equipping churches hum, what makes them thrive are two things, clear vision and leadership. What is our vision? Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, some of y'all are really disappointed right now because you're expecting me to give you something new. You wanted me to give you the cheat codes to Pokemon Go, or you wanted me to unveil the new iPhone 17 to you. Tell me something new. C.S. Lewis says the problem with most Christians is it's not that we need to be told something new. We need to be reminded to be faithful to something old. Jesus says, here's the mission for every church. Go, therefore, and make disciples. One command, make disciples. The idea of make disciples, it means to produce reproducing followers of Jesus Christ. It means I connect my life to someone else. I take what has been poured into me. I pour it into them. Get them nurtured so they can pour into someone else, so they can pour into someone else. This is about multiplication. It's not just about consumption. So this changes the game. So now when you come and hear me or any preacher preach, you need to be thinking, how can I take this and give it to someone else? Not just consuming. Too many spiritually obese people in the church. I got to take so that I can give. That's discipleship. I got to fly. So there's one note we play at this church. One note, one note, one note, one note. All we do here is chicken, 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 chicken. That's the page we're turning here. The vision is not to add more services. It's a puny vision. What, 10 million people in the bay? There's not enough services to reach them. So what? Four services, 8,000 people, but there's 10 million. I think what gives us the most bang for our buck is for each of you to think of yourselves as ministers who are going to reach everybody who has been planted in your sphere of influence. But in order, to ha- but in order for that to happen, you've got to be equipped. And so here's what we've done. I've made some changes. I said, I want to be clear to our staff. I says, we are simple. We're going to be like Los Altos Grill. One page menu. One page. This is not Cheesecake Factory. One page. Real simple. We're going to begin with that by, I told ourselves, we've got to change our culture. What's key to culture is language. So I've changed the titles to most of our staff, and I want to show you what I've done. Stacey Davidson, who oversees our children's ministry, I've now changed her title to Director of Children's Discipleship. That's her title. Her job is not to disciple your kids for you. 
Her job is to come alongside of parents and to help equip their kids with what they need. I don't want to, I will never use this language here. Our kids are not the church of tomorrow. They're the church of today. And they need to be equipped with how they walk with Jesus Christ. Pastor John Gorin is our pastor of adult discipleship. I want you to hear me. The showroom vehicle of our church is growth groups. That is the primary venue by in which we're going to make disciples. So you can't call yourself a true member of Abundant Life, but not be in a growth group. It's going to be there where you learn about discipleship. It's going to be there where you're nurtured in your faith. And it's also going to be there for the first time. I've asked Cheryl Degree, who's over our Justice and Compassion Ministries. I said, look, the problem with so many growth groups is so many small groups and so many churches. It's just give me info, give me info, give me info, give me info. Let's meet some people people, but that's not how people are formed. People are formed by ideas and experiences. So Cheryl Degree is going to come alongside each of our growth groups, going to learn what it means to really serve the least of these. Each of our growth groups going to get their hands dirty, serving them. Pastor Eric, Pastor Eric is pastor of guest discipleship. From the time a person first comes here, if you fill out one of those cards and you drop them off, you're going to get a phone call from him this week. He's pastor of guest discipleship. Then there's Carissa. I've asked Carissa to oversee not only global missions, but we're instituting something new in January called our equipping center. Hear me. It baffles me. How many churches are not talking about key things that we need to disciple our society effectively? I don't know how you make disciples in the Bay and you're not equipped with how to walk with your gay neighbor. Not in a way that bashes them with truth, not in a way that's hateful and so truth oriented you're condemning, but not in a way that pats them on the back and say, do what makes you happy. When people saw Jesus, they saw a man full of grace and truth. So our equipping center will be a network of classes, six weeks, eight weeks, 10 weeks. We're going to talk about how to share your faith evangelism. What does that mean? We're going to equip you with that. How to walk with your gay neighbor. We're going to give you the foundations of the Christian faith. That gets launched in January. We've got some meaningful programs coming up, and I've talked to you about them. The Men's Huddle and Marriage DNA and Young Adults and Student Ministries. But friends, this is just the beginning. I want to reach 10 million people here in lockstep with other churches. We're not the only church. But in order for that, to, for, for that to happen, we've got to get healthy internally. We've got to start running in the black. We're still running in the red. And in order for that to happen, we've got to preach mission. And I want to get to a place where we are now training young leaders who have a dream and vision to plant gospel-centered, disciple-making, multi-ethnic, multi-generational churches right here in the Bay. See, I want to show you again, that's the vision. Not more services, but the vision is how do we reach the Bay Area and our world for the cause of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it begins with us being serious about discipleship. In the wonderful book, uh, The Odyssey, written by Homer, there's an older guy by the name of Odysseus, and Odysseus is concerned because he's going off to war, but he's got a young son named Telemachus, and he's concerned about Telemachus' well-being. So he wants to know who's going to look after Telemachus once he's at war. 
In order to look after his son, he recruits an older, wiser person who has received a bunch of stuff, and he asks this older, wiser person to invest in his son. And you know what this older, wiser person's name is. His name is Mentor. Synonymous with discipleship. Friends, during my tenure here at the church, and I hope it's a long one, I hope it's decades, and then I become pastor emeritus and get on the next pastor's nerves, and I say that tongue-in-cheek. But during my tenure here, we're putting a full-court press on getting you everything you need to walk with Jesus in the marketplace, to be the mentors, the disciplers, So I just want to serve notice, if you're here and you're checking out our church and you just want a place where you can just worship and and get some food and go home and live the same kind of life, this ain't abundant life. But if you want to grow in your faith to the point where you're no longer consumer, but you are a contributor, if you want to get equipped on how to lead your neighbors to faith in Jesus Christ and make a difference in our world. This is the place for you. And it's the place I've been dreaming about, and God's going to do it. Amen. So, Father God, in the name of Jesus, big aspirations, big aspirations. And it felt like... um, I've been drinking um, water out of a fire hydrant, Lord God. It's just tons to process, um, Lord God. But I just pray for a spirit in our church where, where there's a sense in which all of us should feel somewhat intimidated by this because this is huge. It's bigger than us. So God, deliver us from small thinking and small dreams where we don't need a big God. <laughs> there's no way this can happen without you. So we need you in the mix. God, we celebrate your faithfulness to this church. We celebrate it in authentic ways. We celebrate Pastor Paul and the foresight and the the groundwork that he laid. We celebrate him. But Lord God, there's some new things you want to do here. There's some new dreams, some new vision. There's some new people to reach. And God, we need you to pull it off. And so, Lord God, we lean into you today, and we ask you, Lord God, that you would make abundant life an equipping church, a church that gathers so that we can scatter and be the kind of people you've called us to be. Now, Lord God, would you be so kind as to save someone's soul, to add to your church? It is in Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen.